haven't, haven't been with us prior to this, or maybe even if you have, but can't remember what we're talking about, uh, let me give just a quick background, um, bring everyone up to speed, make sure we're all starting in the same place, and set a little context for what we're going to talk about today. Right, so 1 John was written at the end of the first century, probably the last book of the New Testament. John, the Apostle John, is the last surviving apostle, last living apostle. And the church, the, the big C church, the church in general, is facing a challenge from inside. Certainly the church is facing challenges from outside. But John is writing specifically about a challenge the church is facing from the inside. Okay, false teaching has become quite prominent uh, and quite strong. Uh, these, these false teachers challenged Christ's divinity and humanity. They challenged the need for forgiveness of sin. Uh, and, and they were calling themselves the ones with the truth. I asserted back when we began this that, that these were the Gnostics um, and uh, that they, they uh, believed that they possessed special knowledge, a special way to interpret the scriptures that made it make sense in their minds, Right? But of course, it was contrary to uh, the intent, the apostles' in intent. And they denied Christ's humanity uh, and his divinity. They didn't believe that humanity and divinity could coexist. So this group, calling themselves, uh, claiming to be the ones to have the truth, essentially calling themselves the true believers, uh, apparently this, this movement culminated in a movement from the church, a secession from the church. Right? And so the implication was that if you were a true Christian, you would go with them. Now, given our, our recent history, I, I have to make this disclaimer. What we're talking about here are unbelievers in the midst of a body of believers. And the unbelievers are wanting to leave and start something, okay? We're not talking about fellow believers. We're not talking about Mosaic or any other body. We're talking about an unbelieving group of heretics that had infiltrated um, the, the church at this time uh, were perverting the teachings of Christ, were perverting the teachings of the apostles, and were now beginning to leave and try to take as many folks with them as they could, okay? So as a result of this, believers are questioning what they believe. They're questioning the truth of the gospel. They're questioning even their own salvation. Am I right? Are they right, right? Uh, so John is speaking into this situation. So if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles, we're in, in 1 John chapter 3, and even though, the, um, even though the passage that I was given starts in verse 11, I'm going to cheat and start in verse 9, uh, and uh, so yeah, look in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles, turn on your phone, uh, and if you wouldn't mind, uh, we've, we've actually had a few folks have a stand, and I kind of like that, so would you stand with me while we read this passage? So, 1 John chapter 3, actually starting in verse 9, even though I'm stealing it from last week. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Thank you. Go ahead and be seated. So, John discusses three things in this passage that, uh, in his attempt to help the church differentiate between the true Christians and the non-Christians, okay? The believers uh, and the heretics. So the three things we're going to talk about this morning, they're in your outline. First, is the conception of God's children. I really kind of thought about calling this where, where do spiritual babies come from. Um, second, the marks of God's children, right? Family resemblance or spiritual genetics. And then finally, the privileges of God's children. So let's, uh, let's start right off with the conception of God's children, okay? So the, remember, the uncertainty facing the church was who are the true Christians. And so what John does here is he uses the picture of a biological family to make his point. Okay? And that's the reason that I began with this verse, the reason I, I stole two verses from last week is, uh, well, even starting in verse 11, he says, for this, right? And so when you see, remember the, the old adage in Bible study, um, when you see a therefore, you have to find out what it's there for. So this isn't a therefore, this is just a for, but we got to find out what the for is for, right? Is that, can I coin that new phrase? Can that be mine? Um, Find out what the four is for. So in verse 11, it says, for this is what we have heard from the beginning. So we need to go back and, and find out what exactly John is talking about. But another reason to start with this is that the rest of the passage doesn't make sense unless we understand the point he is driving home, particularly in verse 9. Okay? So we have to keep the horse in front of the cart. So he's going to talk about works a good deal starting in verse 11. And I think we could come away from this with the idea that John is preaching some kind of works salvation if we take it without the context of the preceding two verses, which is why I'm starting there, okay? So the works that we talk about coming up uh, are a result of the new birth, not a means to it, okay? I say that one more time. The works that we're going to talk about are a result of the new birth, not a means to it. Okay, so now let's talk about the birds and the bees. Um, <laughs> and this is really what John is doing here, right? God's children, the point he's trying to make, is that God's children are those who are born of him. 
And so he kind of goes all in on this picture of a biological family. Now, lest we not be on the same page here, right? We understand where babies come from, right? A seed, the seed is implanted in the woman. New life is created where there was none. The result is the birth of a child, a new birth, if you will, right? And then that child will, as that child grows, will continue to develop distinctive physical characteristics that mark it as a child of its parents, right? A child is going to look like mom and dad. That is the point that, uh, or that's the picture that John is painting here, okay? So the clear spiritual parallel we see here in verse 9 is, uh, is that this same process essentially plays out spiritually. God's seed is implanted, and, and lest there be any confusion, and I won't dwell here too long, the, the, the Greek for that word seed is sperma, okay? It can be used for plants, but it's not just used for plants. And so this is my point that John is going all in here, okay? Um, he doesn't want there to be any confusion. God's seed abides or is implanted. It places his spirit within us, and new life is created where there was none, all right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are made new, right? New life. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about our being dead and being raised to new life, okay? This is a, a concept that permeates the New Testament. So, God's seed is placed within us. God's spirit is placed within us. New life is created where there was none. The result is the birth of a child of God, right? A new birth, if you will. Jesus in John 3, 3 says, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, right? So we have our parallel so far. This is all making sense to everybody. And then John's point is that as that child of God grows, he or she will develop distinctive spiritual characteristics that mark it as a child of its parent, right? In other words, the, the child of God will look like its father. Okay, so our takeaway from this is that God's work comes first. We are saved first. Just as we didn't have a lot of say in our own birth, well, no say in our own birth, right? We did not make that happen. We did not save ourselves. God saved us. That happened first. That is the stake that we have to drive firmly into the ground as we continue through the rest of this passage, okay? John's not teaching a work salvation. We cannot earn God's love. The changed behavior that we're going to be talking about uh, that follows in this passage is evidence of the new life, not a means to it, okay? Have I said that enough times? <laughs> Good. All right. So... Let's move on here to the marks of God's children, right? Spiritual genetics, family resemblance, which is what I think I actually titled uh, today's sermon. So we see here in, in, uh, in verses 10 and 11 uh, and, and preceding or, or, or following, uh, the bulk of this passage is going to be spent discussing what God's children look like. So as a child grows, he looks more and more like his parent, right? So a LeGraff child is going to be kind of lanky. He's going to have bad eyesight. It's going to have a prominent chin and probably fluffy, dirty blonde hair, right? That's, you're welcome, guys, yeah. Um, 
So that's what my sons look like, um, and it's, right, no mistake, right? So that's the picture John is painting here. So we can see, by this it is evident who are the children of God, and I did my, I was told that this was helpful, so I did my, my two different color thing, right? So by this it is evident who are the children of God, and at the bottom you see that we should love one another. In between, he says, and who are the children of the devil, those who do not do these things, those who do not look this way, um, are not children of God. So we get a series of contrasting negative and positive statements as we go through the next verses. And um, while John focused on personal righteousness in verses 1 through 8, starting in verse 11, he's going to focus primarily on loving fellow believers as the marks that we're looking for within this church. Um, Apparently, you know, from our context, I think we can, I think we can uh, uh, conclude that those who were wanting to separate, those who were the, the Gnostics, those who were denying the apostles' teaching, were likely looking down on the brethren, were likely treating the, the Christians with disdain. And so uh, John is using that as his means of contrasting the two. Uh, on a side note, John is also going to refer to many of Jesus' teachings in this passage, and I'll try to point those out as we go through it. Many of them come from the Gospel of John, which I guess shouldn't surprise us, but not all of them. So let's move on to our first mark here, right? The first mark of God's children. So let's look at, at verses 12 through 14 here. We should not be like Cain, who was, afraid of the e who was of the evil one, sorry, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The positive flip side of that, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So how can we tell who are God's children? The first way is not by whether they are loved by the world, but is, where did I put that? Instead, because they love their fellow believers. Not because they are loved by the world, but because they love their fellow believers. So not whether they are loved by the world. Being hated by the world is not necessarily a sign that you do not belong to God. That makes sense? Too many negatives in there, <laughs> right? If the world loves you, that is not necessarily an indication that you are God's child, I think is the point he's trying to make here. And Jesus said in, in uh, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, right? John, I think, is very clearly drawing on this teaching of Jesus that those people would have likely known. Uh, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. His point here, starting with the, going all the way back to Cain and Abel, is that the world may not love you, and it may not be your fault, right? Friendship with the world is not a sign of salvation. And I can honestly say that I experience this more up north than I do down here in the Bible Belt. Um, I'm sure times will change, and, and we'll all get to experience that down here too someday. But uh, up north, I, I, my personal experience was one of when people would find out that you're a Christian or evangelical Christian, born-again Christian, whatever we want to call it, is that there was a, a disdain often that, that came with that, simply not because I'd done anything, but just simply because that was the case. 
So John's point, sometimes we may be hated simply because we follow Jesus and strive to live righteously. Righteousness in and of itself is convicting to a fallen world, yes? So does your life, these are questions we all need to ask ourselves, does your life, does my life convict those around you, those around me, the way I live? Does it convict them? Do we live in such a way that our coworkers or our friends, our neighbors, scratch their heads? And again, I mean this in a good way. Scratch their heads in a good way. Not because we're uncompassionate jerks, right? Not because we flaunt our righteousness like the Pharisees and we make a show of things. But are we making choices that uh, go against the world's way of doing things? And we're going to get into that more and more as we go along here. John will be a little more explicit with that. Now, I just want to make a note because I'm talking about sometimes... Uh, friendship with the world. Scripture also tells us in 1 Timothy 3.7 and perhaps other places that following, following Christ can actually create good relationships with the outside world. We see that in Acts 2 as well. Uh, at the end of Acts 2, the, the young church, the early church was, was held in esteem by the community. So that's, that's the, the point I think John is saying here and why I said that uh, being loved by the world or being accepted by the world is not necessarily a sign that, that, that you do or do not belong to God. Instead, the flip side, the, the, the converse and the positive side of this is that we can tell if we are God's children because we love our fellow believers, right? So, and brothers here, when it says uh, brothers right there, right, I got to use this little cool thing. Ah, brothers, right? You see that? Yay. Um, right. Brothers here refers to fellow believers, right? John thir 13, 35, sorry, John 13, 35 is a verse you probably have all heard. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We can be marked or we are marked as God's children. Our love for one another is what marks us as God's children, right? It sets us apart from the world. So, in review, <laughs> if I haven't said it too many times already, our actions, that is, loving our fellow believers, mark us as children of God, not others' reactions to us. There's our first mark. Our second mark we see in verses 15 and 16. Uh, let's read those here. Uh, I'm actually going to start at the end of verse 14. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let me read that again. By this we know love, that he, that is Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, right, for our fellow believers. So our second mark, the not side of it, the, the negative side of it, right, we are not takers of life from others. Instead, we, are, we give our lives for others, right? That's, the, that's the, the dichotomy he's setting up here. So not takers of life from others. That seems like kind of a convoluted way to say this. Um, 
Matthew 5, 21 and 22, in that Jesus says, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Yikes. Wow, right? So Jesus doesn't use the word hate there, but he's clearly equating hateful attitudes with murder or with the Old Testament command not to murder. Now, I think Jesus' point here is that murder doesn't just happen, right? Murder is the overflow of a hateful heart. Murder is the destination of hatred. They're on the same road. They're made of the same stuff. So fermented grapes become wine. Fermented hatred becomes ultimately murder or rotting hatred, right? Ultimately becomes murder. Does that make sense? So Jesus took the Old Testament law where folks could say, well, I haven't killed anyone. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. And said, no, you need to look deeper. You need to look at the heart. He does that all through his teaching, but particularly in the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, look deeper and into your heart. You have a hateful heart. You are on the same road, just as guilty as someone who has committed murder and just as desperately in need of a savior. So, um, I thought about, you know, trying to be young and, and popping in, or, or, or touching into pop culture and using like that no haters kind of thing with the eight, but that would have been totally false and, and uh, because I'm not that in touch with pop culture. So, I didn't do it. Um, anyway, uh, so instead of hating, instead of taking life from others, and, and, and the implication here seems to be that in hating others, we are stealing life. We are, we are taking life life from them. Instead, God's children give their lives for others as Jesus did, right? John 15, 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, this, of course, can be literal as it was in the case of Christ, uh, or it can be literal. Uh, it could be literal for us. Chances are pretty good, and I pray that this is the case, that it will only be figurative for most of us, right? Perhaps all of us, I pray that it's only figurative for all of us. But the principle still applies. We should value one another so highly that we give up things that give life, give us life in order to help one another, right? We give up things that, that give us life in order to help one another. Jesus uh, said multiple times that if any man would come after me, he must uh, he must, what is it, um, uh, give up his life. He must die to himself and take up his cross and follow me, right? If anyone would save his life, he will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. Uh, that wasn't primarily a reference to physical death, but rather a giving up of those things that give us life, a sense of life, a false sense of life. We could even call them idols, right? things that we turn to to give us what only God should be giving us. So mark number two of God's children, right? God's children make sacrifices to help others in God's family. How am I doing here? I better kick it into high gear. All right, our third mark. We see in verses 17 and 18. 
and it's kind of an amplification of, of this second mark. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or in truth. Right? So the next mark of God's children is that they are not stingy talkers, but instead they are generous doers. Right? So not stingy talkers. I couldn't find a direct reference to Jesus' teaching here, but perhaps it recalls a little bit the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, or maybe uh, in Matthew 15, 8, when Jesus quotes the, the, the prophet Isaiah, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, right? John is saying here that talk is cheap. Actions are what mark God's children, it's a, an amplification of that last mark. Believers make sacrifices to help one another. So instead of being stingy talkers, God's children are generous doers. So John clearly contrasts word and talk with deed and truth. And he's obviously saying to us, don't just talk about doing good, do good. All right? And in particular in this passage, Make financial sacrifices for one another to help those in need, right? So I'm sure we all know a college student who needs even just a meal or some meals. Uh, single parents. There are people in our, uh, in our circles who have needs, who are in need of help. And we, and you remember a few years ago, Justin Beatles preached a sermon series on how to be rich Right? We are all, by the world standards, we're all pretty rich. And even by American standards, uh, we're a fairly affluent group. So uh, this, I think, should hit all of us uh, in some way. So, a quick review. What are the marks of God's children? What are the distinguishing characteristics, the spiritual genetics at work? Uh, first, we can't tell them if they are loved by the world, but if they love the brethren. We can't tell, that, or they are not God's children if they are haters, but rather if they are self-sacrificers. And they are not God's children if they are stingy talkers, but rather if they are generous doers. Okay, those are our, our identifying marks in this passage. So we're going to turn now to the privileges of being God's child. Let's see here, the privileges of God's children. I, feel, I don't know why that did that. All right, well, it's in your Bible. Um, <laughs> so we can tell family by resemblance, certainly, but we can also tell family by the quality of their relationship. In other words, our children have privileges that other children do not. So think of this, those of you who have, ki have kids, if one of your kid's friends comes over, especially if it's the first or second time, and just walks up to your fridge, opens it up, and helps himself, how do you respond to that? I personally am a little mortified. I don't know why that's such a big deal, but that seems like a privilege that's reserved for the family, right? You need to ask first. You need to get permission. My son, however, does not need my permission to go to the fridge and make himself something to eat. In fact, uh, if your kids are old enough, you'd probably prefer that he doesn't ask you, right? Make your own dying sandwich. How old are you now? Go, get, go help yourself, right? That's the privilege of being uh, in the family. So John uh, here shares with us some of the privileges that we have as God's children that further mark us as being part of the family. I need to, to make a, a footnote here, though, as, as a professor, I can't, I can't, I don't want to plagiarize, right? So I really relied on the InterVarsity, uh, InterVarsity Press New Testament commentary to help me through this passage. 
Um, and so there's my, there's my footnote, and we'll go on from here. So the first privilege of being God's child is confidence. And we see that in verses 19 and in 21. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. He's referring back to, to doing, uh, operating, or loving in uh, deed and in truth, right? By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. I'm going to skip verse 20 for the time being. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So our first privilege is confidence. There's a confidence that comes with doing what your parents ask you to do. Yeah? Right? So if I come home and I find Aiden, my son Aiden, uh, watching TV, he knows that he's going to be asked some questions. Is your homework done? Did you practice your violin? Did you practice your saxophone? Did you do anything else that your mother asked you to do? Right? If he answers yes to all of those, things are good. There's no problem. There is a confidence. He watches TV with confidence, <laughs> knowing that he has done his father's will. Right? Um, Likewise, our hearts are reassured before God when we know we're doing what he wants us to do. In this case, as I said, loving indeed and in truth. Now, again, i got to make this clear. This doesn't make us his children, but it helps us to come to him confidently. Our obedience doesn't save us, nor does it change God's love for us, like it doesn't change my love for Aiden if he answers no to one of those questions, right? He is still my child. Perhaps there is some discipline uh, ahead for him, because I love him, but uh, it does not affect, it doesn't change my love for him, nor does God's love uh, for us change. But it does affect our relationship with him, right? That makes sense, I hope? Good. But that leads us directly into uh, our second, um, our second privilege of being God's child, and that is grace. And we see that in verse 20. Right? For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. John is the ultimate realist. Right? We saw that in chapter 1, 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Right? Don't. Uh, anyone try to pretend that there is no sin in you. Let's not pretend that every single time we face God, we do it without hearts that condemn us. I would might submit that, at least for me anyway, most of the time when I face God, my heart condemns me in some way. And inevitably that's going to happen. We've fallen short. We've not loved. We're, not, we're, we're actively not loving the brethren. Uh, in fact, maybe there's someone that I kind of hate right now. Um, or we've, we're not living righteously. Our hearts will condemn us. John reassures us that those who are God's children, for those who are God's children, that our hearts are not the final measure, but God's goodness, God's greatness is. Right? Nothing is hidden from him. He knows us completely and loves us completely. We are not kicked out of the family because our heart is condemning us. And in fact, in this passage, and, and like the parallel here in verse 20, we're reminded of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
this brings us to the third privilege of being God's child, and, and, uh, yeah, and then we're going to wrap it up here. The third is intimacy, and this deals largely with verse 22, and I need to make a confession that I have struggled with verses like this. I have a hard time. I, I don't know what to do with verse 22 often. It says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So the interpretation that I'm going to share, which came out of that InterVarsity Press commentary, uh, actually makes the most sense to me. It makes more sense to me than, than maybe anything else I've come across. I'm not saying it's definitive. There may be better interpretations out there. I don't know them. So John's point, remember, is to show the parallels between human families and God's spiritual family. So to understand the first half of verse 22, we need to look at the second half. Because we have his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, what has John just spent this whole chapter telling us? Uh, those who keep his commands are the ones who are already his children. Their relationship is already secure through Christ. We can approach him confidently, whether we're feeling confident or not, right? Hebrews, uh, what is that? Which chapter is that? Hebrews, read the whole book of Hebrews and find the verse that, that corresponds to what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, and I didn't write it down, right? The book of Hebrews also affirms this, that because Christ is our high, pri our high priest, we can approach God with confidence. So the second half, he's talking about the, the pre-existing relationship. So then we go to the first half, the, the trickier part. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, what he's doing here, I believe, and again, uh, this, I'm, not, I'm not claiming this is definitive, but I believe that what John is doing here is painting the picture of a child confidently approaching his loving parent. Okay? So a perfect loving father who longs to give good gifts to his children. So what John is giving us here is a promise that we can come to God and ask him boldly for anything because we are his children. It is not a promise that we will get every single thing we ask for, right? Good parents sometimes say no to their children, not because they don't love them, not because they're not able to deliver, but because they know what is best. Um, this doesn't break the relationship nor should it discourage the child from continuing to ask. Okay, so the picture here is one of intimacy. Um, it almost smacks a little bit of maybe the daughter who has daddy wrapped around her finger, something like that. You know, you go and, and you know that your dad just wants to do everything for you. That's the picture. That's the picture of the intimacy that we have as God's child. It's not a name it and claim it. It's not a your obedience earns you anything that you want. Uh, it's not a prosperity gospel, but rather a picture of closeness and intimacy. Uh, and then verses 23 and 24 are a final reminder, kind of a summary of what has come before, as well as an anticipation of what's going to come in chapter 4. So I'm going to punt a little bit on verses 23 and 24. Uh, so a quick, quick, quick review before, I, I, um, before we have the band come back up here, right? We are born of God. And because we have been born of God, because God has done this work in us, we uh, grow into his likeness. And we can tell who are those who follow him because they grow into his likeness. And uh, they are self-sacrificers for one another. Uh, they are generous with one another. They do not hate one another, as Jesus taught us. And then we have privileges as God's children. Uh, confidence, grace, intimacy. 
These are the things that mark us. They're not the things that save us. These are the things that demonstrate over time. We're talking trajectory here, like the stock market, right? It goes like that. Um, trajectory that over time mark us as God's children. So how do we respond to this? I think the obvious question is where do you find yourself? Uh, perhaps you're not a believer. Perhaps you've not yet been born of God. I can say confidently that he is inviting you right now to be born into his family. And if you want to talk more about that, you can come see me after the service, see those who have brought you, or, or speak with those who have brought you, but please do so. Perhaps you are, you are already a believer, but your heart is condemning you. Are there things in your life that need to be made right? Are there people, especially other Christians, that you hate? Is he leading you to make sacrifices on behalf of another? He knows already. He knows everything. He's inviting you into a restored relationship of obedience. Perhaps you're a believer in feeling secure in your relationship with God. That's fantastic. But keep asking yourself, how can you encourage and restore others? How can you be sacrificing for others' good? And use that confidence to pray boldly for God to do great things, even crazy things, for his name's sake. Uh, as I said, if you want to talk to someone about salvation or about anything else, uh, come up here to the front after the service when we're done. Um, there'll be me or someone else will be here uh, ready and willing to talk to you. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to watch a short video on family that we saw for the first time last week, but maybe not everyone saw it. It's really terrific. We're going to sing one more song, and then you're going to be dismissed. Okay? Let's pray together. Our Father, you know everything. Our hearts are, lie bare before you. There is nothing about us that you do not know. And we thank you that that is not what saves us. We are saved because you have implanted your spirit within us. And that we have been born anew, born from above, made into new creations. Lord, it is my prayer that... Um, if our hearts are condemning us, that we would turn to you, that we would repent, that those marks of your children would become evident in our lives, that we would do what is necessary to show the world what a believer looks like, not in our own strength, not by gritting our teeth, but by submitting ourselves to you, by laying down our lives for you and allowing your Holy Spirit to work in and through us. I pray for anyone here who may not yet even be one of your children. I pray that your Holy Spirit would gently be nudging and convicting and that, uh, uh, that they would respond in faith and enter into the new life, enter into your family. You are good. You are good and perfect and generous and kind Father. And we come to you through Jesus. And in his name, amen.